This is Gestoras. Gestoras podcast brings you conversations with women identifying Latina cultural managers from the North and the South. We celebrate their stories of success, challenges, and lessons learned. The episodes alternate between Spanish and English. This week's episode is in English. Este episodio es en inglés. Visite nuestro sitio web en gestoras.net para leer transcripciones en español y en otros idiomas. Ruby Lopez Harper is a Mexican mother, wife, dancer, photographer, poet, and social justice warrior. Her experience includes supporting individual artists, community development, economic development, cultural tourism, and public art. She draws on a varied background that includes corporate affairs, community relations, volunteerism, employee engagement, marketing and communications, and business administration. She is currently the executive director of the Craft Emergency Relief Fund and works on projects with the Association of Tribal Archives, Libraries, and Museums. You can find out more about Ruby and her accomplishments by visiting our website at gestoras.net. This was our conversation. Ruby, Ruby Lopez Harper, hi. It's so great to have you here uh, at Gitoras. I'm so grateful that you made the time and that we get to have you here in our first season. Thank you for the invitation. It's really an honor. And I was so intrigued by the whole concept that to be a part of it is really exciting. That's really great. And I'm very excited about our conversation. Um, as I've told you offline, I've been a fan of your work for a very, very long time. So I'm very excited to get uh, more people. I know you're very well known for your work, but I'm interested in having a, a wider audience to, to learn about you and what you do. So why don't we start with that? Let's learn about you and what you do. So, so what do you do? What do I, some days it feels like, what don't I do? Um, uh, so I am the executive director of the Craft Emergency Relief Fund. And I've been in that role for about a year now. And prior to that, I was with a national service organization that focused on advocacy for arts and culture. And I worked primarily with 4,500 local arts agencies around the country and doing tools, training, resources, um, trends, research, you know, kind of anything and everything to help push their practice forward. And then, you know, prior to that, I was with a local arts agency in Columbus, Ohio, and also have a varied background in the corporate environment. I also ran a small nonprofit theater for a number of years as board president. Um, and in my spare time, I'm a mom to three kids. I have a husband who's a drummer, and I also am a dancer at heart. Uh, have had a long torrid love affair with photography and poetry. Uh, and I do a lot of needle craft now. So I've kind of gotten back to some of my familial roots in terms of artistry. Uh, I do cross stitch, needle punch, uh, embroidery, knitting, sewing, kind of very tactile. Um, so I probably buy more supplies than I use, but Oh my gosh. So I did not know a lot of this part, which is one of the reasons I love these conversations because all these things come out. Your dance card is full. <laughs> Pretty full. Yeah. No. And it's funny because I have to like put things down in order to do other things. So I was on a, a bunch of 
grant panels back to back and overlapped in the last few months. And so I've done nothing because I had to read grant applications. Otherwise I would be sitting, stitching, doing things. Stitching. Yeah. So I'm excited. I have one more trip and then I get to come back and get back into making, which really it's very, um, it's really soothing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I find it really centering and really like, you know, the, the day kind of melts away if I have a chance to take a few stitches. Yeah, and, and I think even in like the, the the chaos of a day and the way that every day can take its own turns, it's something that I feel like I'm making progress in something that means something to me, that it, there's no external expectation of when this has to be done or how it has to be done or who, it, you know, a, a lot of the things that I make, I give away. So they end up being a, 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 a treat, but nobody knows that they're getting it till I put it in the mail. So there's also right. that kind of like <sighs> closure yeah. to the day. Cause I always, yeah. I do all my crafting late um, after, after dinner, before the kids go to bed while we're just like hanging out. So hanging out. yeah. The chance to make a small thing and just watch how it evolves and even learn about how you move or how you think or just it's just and seeing a thing be come to life or be created mm -hmm. just with time and this motion. It's really it's really beautiful. But um, so I hope you get to get back to that all that soon. But all this other stuff that you do, all this other career and the dance and this it's is is are the arts in your DNA? Is that does that come from your family? Did how did you come to the arts? How did how did oh. that connection between you and the arts happen? Yeah, no, um, that's a really fun question. That I so you know there was a time in my life that I think I was very white, <laughs> and I say that because I don't think that I because I grew up with the arts, right? So every weekend my family was getting together. Um, people were singing, dancing during the week. My mom would play music. There would be music in the car. They're singing, they're, you know, uh, watching TV and everything is, you know, some, some type of acting or, I don't know. It was just what I grew up with. I assumed everybody grew up that way. And the arts were the other thing. So dance and chorus and theater and, you know, that stuff separate from the tejido that my grandmother used to make or the cross stitching that my mom was doing or, you know, the colorful paper punching. I mean, I made I made um, piñatas out of clay pots in Mexico. Like that was not the arts to me. That was just how we lived. So I started in the arts when I was a sophomore in high school and I started in, in the dance department. And it wasn't until years later that I started, at, you know, as you sit at your desk one day and you're like, oh my word, I've been, this is, what, how have I, how did I miss that? How did I, you know, so you get these like existential moments, I think in your life um, where you realize the disconnect and then you work to put it all back together. Um, and I think that really, that moment gave me a resurgence in sewing. My grandmother was a seamstress. Um, it really brought me back into cross stitching. And so I, I did a smaller stint. This one's been a lot more, um, uh, extended and, you know, just really started realizing that it is DNA. It's who I am dancing, singing, um, a little bit of performing. Apparently the legend goes that my mother put me on a restaurant table at three to sing for my supper, so to speak. And my best performance was the Brady Bunch theme song. So 
Wait, was that on the table? Three years old on the table singing the Brady Bunch theme song? Yeah. That is, that is magnificent. That is magnificent. <laughs> My mom was like, if you sing. <laughs> I was like, okay. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, You're, if it works, sure. Did, right? <laughs> now people look at you funny if you get a restaurant table to sing. Oh, that's why I'm not allowed in places anymore. Right. Can't go into Nando's or anything Same. like that. <laughs> so this this epiphany that you had, right, of putting all of this together and saying, "Oh my God!" Right, it's all all creativity and it's all of the arts, and I've been doing it all along. Um, how did that change um, the way you your aspirations for yourself and how you move through the world and what the next steps would be for you? You know, what's weird is not much at that point at that moment. I think the big the big epiphany was realizing the distance that I had put between my my connection to culture and ancestry and the life that I was living. Um, so I was, uh, I was on a, a committee, a national committee, and they had sent around kind of the demographics of the committee structure, right? Like we do, we want representation. So everybody gets, and you're filling gaps. And so you, they've got the, the skills and then they have the identities. And I had met the organizing woman a number of times and uh, in person. And when it came out and I was looking at it, I was listed as white. And that was a big moment because I, I always, I mean, I never hid that I was Mexican, but I think like, it's just who I am. So I, at the time I wasn't like out, out, out. Um, and I called her up and I'm like, legit, you think I'm white? And she's like, you're not. And I'm like, no, <laughs> not even a little bit. <laughs> like, oh, okay, let's fix that. And now I'm going to go have a, an identity crisis because I, how, how is it people don't, what have I done wrong that people don't see that as who I am? Um, and then I went full tilt in the other direction. So if you would come into my office when I was working um, at, when I was working in an office, I had papel picado hung from the ceiling. I had, I mean, my current workspace is definitely full and colorful, but it was like, legit all the Mexican imagery colors, lots of skulls and got, you know, like, you know, sugar skulls. I mean, I've got a Katrina on my desk, like, and then I was wearing wheels to work. I had my big earrings. I was wearing my lipstick. Like I, yeah. Right. Like I was not, not going to let people know what I was. And at that moment I started using my middle name, um, which is Lopez. And as part of my full name, I was just going by like the full of it. And it still throws people for a loop. They don't know how to process that my middle name is a last name. Um, but I was like, any indication that I can give to people that I'm Mexican, that I'm not white, that I know how to move in these spaces, but I'm not like you. <laughs> Even yeah. though we share a lot of, you know, I think... Um, space it's not i'm not like you yeah and i think there's a real difficulty among what i call the anglo-white <laughs> uh to the anglo-white to to see beyond a very unless you're very clearly visually of one particular ethnic group to see as anything other than 
Black, Indigenous, Asian, White, right? Before, and and if you don't quite, if you're sort of in the middle, you know, you it's it's hard. I think it's hard for them <laughs> to know how to what to do with you and where to yeah. put you. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. I would often, and as I'm sure you know, a lot of folks have um, in similar vein. You know, where do you come from? Well, I was I was born in California. I don't know where do you come from though and I'm like I don't understand like like I'm gonna make you I'm gonna make you say it yeah no really where do you come from no, really where do, well, what do you think that means you know and and I realize even in those conversations the are you Mediterranean are you Greek are you oh my Italian? gosh yes. are you all of these things that are not Mexican was never on the list I get I get Indian or Iranian am I are you from Iran are you Indian? No. And it's, it's, yeah, it's been fascinating. And I think that was a bigger identity epiphany than the art, the art. I just felt really full and I felt really big and I felt like Mm. the, the, the joyfulness of knowing that that was an, that was an experience that not everybody got to have. Um, And, you know, a little bit of like, oh, that's so sad that you didn't get to do that because it's amazing. Um, But but that moment in was was a game changer. Like it really did. And then I unapologetically have been chasing more information. I've, you know, shown up this. This is who you're getting now. Like it's not. I used to show up and, you know, um, I'm on my third husband. And all three husbands have been white and they all have very, you know, European last names, um, you know, Harper, Klassen, Reinhardt. And I would show up as Ruby Klassen and people would be like, whoa, Whoa. you. And I'm like, yeah, I know. (laughs) Surprise. And the Reinhardt, come on. Ruby Reinhardt people, people, you could see their matrix was glitching as they were trying to process who they were seeing and the information on the registration list. And I'm like, yeah, I know. My maiden name's Gabriela. That is so interesting, right? Because, I mean, we all do this, right? We try to find shortcuts to understand each other and all the markers don't make sense with a with a template i think that people have here in the united states the white supremacist view right that some people have assimilated and some people are part of it, it doesn't fit the latino the latina identities because we all have multiple identities as latinas don't fit those those markers at all and i was actually thinking about this realization that the creativity and arts encompassed everything you did the things with your family and the and the formal arts as well and how that was a discovery of yourself as latina was a bigger epiphany don't you think it's all part of the same thing? Because for, for Latinos, singing as a family, creating creating things as a family, as a group, is part of our identity, right? It's, it's always there. And I find, to me, when I came to the United States, one of the things that most shocked me is the sort of divorce between the things that you do as a family, as a group, and then where the arts live, which is arts are something that you go to do, but are not part of the daily thing it may be a hobby that one person in the person in the family has but it's not daily life i can't imagine many of the families i know um and i know many artists in their homes whipping out a guitar after supper every night and just singing yeah 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 um i think the reason why it wasn't more of a kind of a cultural epiphany is because i still 
didn't equate the art that I was experiencing day-to-day life as a, as an art that was specific to Latino, right? That like my Mexican family did it. This is what we did. Like to me, I was like, oh, we just sing at home. Like it isn't that I was still not there. Right. And I think in the subsequent exploration and the subsequent understanding is really when I started to realize more that, um, you know, yes, singing is kind of universal, but the act of it, the, the community, the family connection, the, the passing it down, even what we're singing and, um, you know, that became more distinct. Right. And so what I'm giving to my children in the same way, right. So my kids are mixed, they're white and Mexican. Um, and what I'm giving to them is a deeper connection to their Mexican ancestry. And what does that mean? And what does that look like? So we have a lot of imagery. We have a lot of, um, you know, they have traditional clothing as well. And we talk about embroidery as part of this. And from this, you know, it isn't necessarily from the part of Mexico that we're from, but because it is kind of encompassing, you learn about the different regions. And so we have placemats that are Otomi embroidery and they're beautiful. I have a wonderful friend in LA that obtains items for me and often she'll text me, you know, oh, I'm going to get some of these. Do you want some? I'm like, girl, yes, all the time. Um, and you know, the bead, the bead work that you can pick up in Oaxaca and the clay and the pottery. And I mean, just so many of the, of the pieces that I can give them and say, and this is how other people do the same thing. And here are linkages between different images that are used in the embroidery that don't necessarily originate solely from, but were brought over by, and this is how we're connected on a global level versus just, you know, this is where we're from in Mexico. And then, you know, but the rest of us grew up in LA and now we're all over here on the East coast. So you have to be able to trace back and our family, our family's lost a lot in that lineage of, you know, trying to keep track of who came from where. Um, yeah. And I can't recreate that. Like my, a lot of my elders are gone. Um, and so I think in the subsequent, you know, kind of come realizations and, coming back to the the connectivity um is in is realizing the distinctions in the cultura that exists versus this is just you know theater's different but it's not different singing is different but it isn't different it's, different. it's the experience of it that makes it ours right and ruby you are your career has been all about leadership and advocacy in the arts all, all of it, except for the, I guess, the corporate blip. But <laughs> when, how did you step into that? How did leadership and advocacy show up in your life? Was it connected to this, disconnected? How did that begin for you? So I'll say I got in, I, uh, leadership, leadership says leadership's been a tumultuous experience. Um, because I think up until now, like this year's old, <laughs> I was like, no. I don't ever want to be that. I don't ever want to be that responsible. I don't ever want to be that beholden. I don't ever want to be that obligated. I don't ever want to be that. I just want to be able to speak my mind and do my thing and not, and, you know, to a certain extent, not carry some of the consequences of it. But you are aware of your resume, right? You are aware of your resume. 
And that's been part of it, right? That, like, um, because I think, you know, there's so many layers to it. And, and the times that I have been viewed as a leader have never been, haven't been the times that I wanted to be one. So I think it was about that, like, yes, I was a leader. Yes, I was in these, you know, very visible positions. Yes, I was loud in spaces where I had privilege to be, um, but sometimes not by choice. Sometimes it was circumstance. Sometimes it was, you know, other people didn't step forward and I did, or they all stepped back and I was on the line and I'm like, mm, all right, well, somebody's got to do it. Um but I think what I've really come to in, and more so I think in the last two years is that yes, there's always been a line of um, being a little bit ahead. And in a lot of cases being a little bit behind, but still being ahead, right? So like early adopter or you're a leader in the middle or you're coming up the rear, there's still a place for everybody in leadership and, and being able to adapt to all of those spaces um, I think is something that's really unique. Um, but this, the last two years, I think have really shown me more that the spaces that I'm in now by choice and the, I mean, even with your opening Jimena saying like, you know, I've heard about you and I know a lot about you. Yeah. But I, like, I didn't know that. <laughs> I feel like the title finally gives me the 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 framing that I felt I want I needed I don't even know that I want I never wanted it but I have it now and now I'm like huh <laughs> watch me go now you know you, you all thought I was doing you know um I'm definitely pushing harder now um and coming to it I think there's always been you know I kind of go back I'm a Libra so there's always this like balancing act and, um, very deeply, deeply, deeply grounded in justice and fairness. And if that's out of whack by, you know, sadly it's, it's, you know, sometimes according to my, my metrics, but sometimes it's pretty obvious. Um, and I think generally accepted that this is not okay. And so now how do we move in that space? Um, but I think it kind of goes back to that. Cause I remember even being in school you know, in elementary school as far back and, you know, sticking up for the kids who were getting bullied worse than I was um, and feeling a fierce, fierce sense of protectiveness for people who, who were, you know, for lack of better words, right. Who were weaker than me or that were less, less, uh, you know, privileged, less resource, less all the things than me and, and people who were suffering more than I felt I was. Um, I, I, I was probably more unapologetically forward back then. Um, then I, uh, you know, throughout the years you, you go into corporate work and that kind of eats you alive in a certain way and you get into nonprofit and that eats you up in a certain other kind of way. Um, For sure. But even now, you know, I think there's just something very visceral about unfairness and injustice that I can't tolerate. And so I have to figure out, um, figure out how to navigate it. And, and I think that's what's led me to a lot of the spaces and places and conversations that I've found myself in. Um, yeah. 
So in this place of, of now formal leadership that you find yourself, um, can, can you tell me a little bit about what you do, what, what, it, what your job is about, what the organization is oh, about, and, yeah. and, and how does your leadership work show up there? Yeah. So the organization itself is a, a funding machine um, of sorts. We support craft artists when they experience a disruption in their artistic livelihood due to a disaster or an emergency. And you can define both as broadly as possible. So a lot of times disasters are what you would think, uh, floods, earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, uh, wildfires, and emergency, personal emergencies are, are just that. Um, you know, they've been robbed, their car broke down, they um, had a personal injury because of repetitive motion, mental health crisis, caregiving crises. We're seeing a lot of those where, you know, especially during the pandemic where people had, you know, people they were caring for that completely halted what they were able to, you know, what they had going in terms of their artistic um, practice and livelihood. And um, in addition to that, we do readiness resources. So we have some grant making that we do in that area. And then we also have um, educational uh, opportunities, resources, guides, tools. Um, and then we do some advocacy as well. And we also do um, a lot of network building. And then we share that role with a number of other service organizations that are focused in the craft community. Um, it's interesting, you know, so the, that's what the organization does. When I talk about like what I do, um, I keep all the trains moving <laughs> and I keep all of the planes in the air. Um, you know, it's the typical executive director stuff, um, fundraising, relationship building, you know, visioning, motivating, um, inspiring, um, but also I think pushing peers, especially um, around a lot of, uh, you know, equitable practice in particular. Um, I do a lot of writing. I do a lot of reading. <laughs> I do a lot of talking. Um, but it's been great. And I, I think the nature of the practice itself in terms of disaster management and understanding the life cycle of disaster and all of the players that have to come to the table and realizing too, that like as craft, it's one part of artistic practice. That's one part of an arts and culture community. That's one part of a larger community. That's one part of a, so the circles that we move in and the overlaps that exist and being able to understand that and navigate it um, and provide guidance and counsel around that um, is a lot of the work that I get to do. Um, and then obviously I work with an incredible staff um, that's just brilliant. I mean, my best work is staying out of their way and letting them do the great work that they're here to do. Um, and in a lot of ways, I think it's, it's similar even with our peers that, you know, if we can stay out of each other's way, but have an ability to understand what we're all working on. So that kind of village mentality that supports the community that is craft has been um, a lot of what I've been trying to move the needle in, in the work that we're doing now. Yeah, and it seems like some of the skills that you need are to know how to include people, know how to be respectful, be willing to study, right? Um, right? To study what's going on or anticipate what's coming forward. What other what other skills do you feel are necessary to do the job that you do, and how did you get them? Oh, 
were they built in uh, or did, how did you learn how to do, how did you learn how to do what you do? So, well, and, and the different aspects of it, right. That um, I went to school, I have my associate's degree in accounting and general studies. Um, and so it, that has helped me the most in every, in every role that I've had across the years that I've been in the workforce. Um, because I think having a sense of what it takes to get something done and not just the, um, the, the physical labor of it, but the tactical labor of it, that everything has a cost and you need to ascribe that cost and that cost then equals value. And so there's a mentality that we have to value the work that we do before anybody else will. And if we can't do that, then nobody else will. Um, and so, one of the skills I think is really around that understanding the finances of the organization and how resources are being allocated. So when I talk about like keeping all the trains running and all the planes in the air, capacity, uh, making sure that people aren't burned out and that they're that that their energy is being put towards the thing that they're here to do. And so a lot of that I think is just understanding all of the components of a project and how those things come together. And then you take that knowledge and you apply it across an organization and it's kind of similar, right? So project management, I think has been a really great help being able to understand finances. One of the roles that I did um, as a grants officer director when I was in Columbus was reading all the audits for the operating support grantees all of the audits. So I had to read every year, 28 to 30 audits. Oh my you gosh. That's a lot. <laughs> you learn a lot. Exactly. That's, that's an education right there. Right there. And then one year, um, I think as a grant maker, I sat on panels all year long and I read over 800 applications. You learn a lot about the grant making process. So I think there's something to be said for the time that you can invest in the practice of the things that your organization is doing so that as a leader, you have a broader understanding. Like, I don't know the day-to-day -day things and it's not my job to know the day-to-day -day things and mm -hmm. I think being realistic about where I belong. One of the greatest things that's happened in the last year, um, I've been working with an executive coach for a number of years. He's amazing. Um, and when I started this new position, he said, you know, you're a doer and you're a fixer, but now you need to be a thinker and you've got to let go of the things that are your comfort work, mm -hmm. getting in and, and tinkering with projects and tinkering with the, that's not your work anymore. Like you have to trust the people whose job it is to do that. Um, and, and then step back and remember, remember that there are five ways to get to everything and one way is not the way, um, which is something that I, I really work hard at just kind of living. Um, so I think flexibility is really important as a leader in my position. Trust is huge, 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 huge. And I've learned that lesson across up, down, sideways um, that, you know, trust is, is the foundation of success in being able to work as a group. Um, and, you know, being able, I think also to, to, to take the risk of having an idea and a vision and letting that be big enough that other people can find their way in it, but not being so prescriptive that there's only one way to get to the, to the end. 
Um, and that there is no end. It's a constant cycle. I mean, you know, I remember when they were interviewing me, they said, um, you know, so what do you plan to accomplish in your first year? And I was like, I plan not to fuck this up. <laughs> and they were like, wait, what? I'm like, what do you think I'm going to get done right. here? Other than Global domination is what they expected. Right? What do you expect to do in your first 90 days? I'm like, a lot of listening and a lot of reading. Like, it's unreasonable. It's unreasonable what we've put on people to try to, to do and and really taking to heart the idea that there is there are actual emergencies mm-hmm. but day-to-day work is not that right and mm-hmm. and we don't do a service to leadership or um anyone on in the group if we don't give people the time that they need to digest and learn the information um and really living the expectation that it doesn't have to be perfect. Oh my gosh. Like the whole idea of pushing against supremacist culture in the workplace. It isn't every day, every day, every moment, constant questioning and making it okay. And as a leader to be like, y'all, I don't feel good. So I'm going to take the afternoon off. You know how to find me. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Which is a big kind of roundabout, like, oh, all of these things. But I think for me, the the most important work is making sure that you have a value system as a leader and that you're committed to that value system and that you find the role that fits that value system. Because otherwise, it's just constant tension, constant tension. And you were talking, I want to get to the question of your own identities and how you bring that to your work. So when we started our conversation today, you started out by defining yourself uh, in terms of your origins and your work and your role as a mom. How do all those identities show up in your work and in this practice um, that you're doing in your in, in your new position? Not so new at this point, but in, the, in this Not position. Not so new, but still kind of new, right? How do all the ruby parts show up in, in, in your work? Well, I'll say this. So I think first, the fact that I'm able for me to really um, be a woman and be Mexican in my workplace matters. Um, Because I think for me, it's always going to bring forward a, a, a point of view in terms of care and equity and representation and space, right? And certainly a lot of that have come to because of a lot of, you know, uh, failures over the years where you try one way and it doesn't quite work. You try the next thing and it doesn't quite work. You look at all the pieces and things you still have growth and work to do. But I think for me, um, you know, being a woman in the workplace, always being cognizant of, you know, am I allowing myself, um, you know, to be sidelined, even as a leader, right? Like I think um, executive director only takes you so far and then you still have to work against everything else that's built around you. Um, And so holding that space. And what's interesting is that even, even having these, you know, kind of generally accepted as marginalized identities, right? Women and being Brown, um, I still encounter spaces and places where the people around me are struggling and they're still being affected, you know, by, 
uh, supremacist culture, whether it's this idea of being perfect, we're not perfect, we're human. And I think um, some of the, the, you know, Mexican culture that I, you know, have kind of come back to this idea that, you know, we're all people, we're, we all come from humble origin, we all, you know, go back to, and there's this extension of, and the, the respect that we give to our ancestors, well, what does that look like then when we come into the workplace? Who are the practice elders that we should be listening to, honoring, and then, learn, you know, learning from, and then moving to? So I feel like there's always, now, you know, I, I Every, a lot has changed in the last year about the way that I move. So I can't say that it's always been this way, but um, the commitment coming into this position around, um, you know, not taking a back seat, not um, uh, being invisible and, um, you know, really holding that space and asking the questions and, and doing the things, right, that, um, I always wanted leadership that I was beholden to in the past to do better for me. I'm just doing that now. Like um, when I came to the organization, we didn't have domestic partner coverage as part of our benefits package. We have that now. Um, we didn't have vision. We have vision now. We did unlimited PTO and not just to do it. We did it um, as part of a, of a practice of collective care and collective rest and we hold the supervisor accountable for their person not taking time and not having breaks. And it's on the supervisor to organize and make sure that that work is done. Um, because if you put it on the, the person who has less power, of course, there's going to be problems. And, and I ask the people who I work with, how, are, how is this showing up? What are the plans for the next quarter? You need to ask the person that you work with and they need to ask the person that they work with. Um, and so this idea of a village working instead of single-handed or isolated um, and, and giving space for people to be the, the thing that they're here to be, right? That like, I'm here to be the leader. And so what does that look like? You're here to be the deputy director. What does that look like for you? Um, and so I think that's been a lot of it. As a mom, I've learned a lot too that, you know, if I can give and hold space for respect and dialogue with my children, like why can't, why do I find it so difficult to do that same thing for the people that I work with or for the adults in my life, right? Um, sometimes I'll tell my kids, you know, the way you just talked to me, I'd, I'd slap somebody for that out in the real world. Like you gotta, you gotta work on that. <laughs> And then I have to hold myself to that too, that like, I'm not going to let myself be spoken to that way anymore. I'm going to allow, I'm going to hold other people as much as I work to hold myself accountable. I'm going to hold other people accountable as well. Um, and I think generally we all have to do that. Like we all need to think about what does that mean? And is that, you know, Mexican culture, maybe, is it badass, you know, brown woman hell yeah it is <laughs> i definitely come from a long line of strong opinionated women and i'm okay with that yeah and it's about living the culture that you want the the world to be right and a lot of what you were saying earlier about trust right and listening and stepping back it's about giving up power 
giving seeding power in order to build the world that you say you want to live in, right? Uh, it, there has to be some kind of letting go and some kind of sacrifice. Oh my word! To 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 make that world happen, really, and and it is it is the hardest lesson. Um, and I, you know, admittedly haven't always been the best at it. Um, and along the way, I think the the growth that we have as leaders and none of us, I mean, I shouldn't say none of us. There are a amazing few that were just by design birthed this way. They've shown up this way. They've never not been this way. Um, and wow, their powerhouse is an amazing and certainly inspirational. Um, I aspire now in the kind of the, the last 20 years of my work life that I have left to build it better and to do better and to sacrifice the things that need to be sacrificed in order to create better. Where I think five years ago, it was a different time for me. Um, and, and I was in a, certainly in the, in a much more volatile place personally and professionally, um, that I really want now for people to, I mean, this is such a, an amazing opportunity. I want people to hear that, like, it isn't always, this isn't always where you start. This is kind of where you end up. Um, and it's okay. Um, and, and the honor that I can give to the people that, you know, may have not experienced me at my best is that I won't treat other people like that again that I am, that we, you know, I personally am putting in the time, the effort, the energy. Um, so I do a lot, I think, in terms of examination every day. I listen a lot. Um, one of the things that I spoke with, with the staff when they were interviewed, the staff interviewed me as well. And I told them, I said, you know, I'm not here to play hierarchy. I'm here to work as a collective. And that's going to mean a commitment to openness so I don't surprise them with things. Um, I'm very open about where what what's happening, how decisions are being made, how their contributions are factoring into those decisions. Um, recently, we just decided on a new color palette, and it was their contribution, and they guided us to the to the place where we ended up. But all along the way, I was like, "Look, we still have a lot of work to do." And at the end of the day, we're going to pick the thing that may not be the thing that you individually want, but know that because of this, you know, open conversation, because of this open process, we're going to get to a place where we all feel like we contributed right. to the decision right. and we can all embrace the outcome. And everybody's like, thank you for saying that. I'm like, yeah. thank you for and it's the opposite of groupthink, right? It's the opposite of committee think or groupthink where everybody tends to the mean and nobody's happy in the end. It doesn't help anything. It's it's really leveraging the power of all these brains, right? Of all these incredible people you have around. And it's it's a little bit like conducting work, right? Like conducting a, a, a symphony where you you need all of these notes and all of this music to make this beautiful piece. It's been fascinating. And I feel really lucky. The deputy director that I work with, um, uh, you know, I can ask him very, very openly. Mm. I, I'm having these feelings like, but, and also I recognize that maybe it's because I'm, I'm struggling with where I should be in this. Right. Is this unreasonable? And he's like, no. And I'm like, 
or he'll be like, well, and I'm like, okay, well, let's talk. Let me understand how this is unreasonable so that I can process for the next time that something like this happens because I'm still new. And I think I'm pretty open about my newness. Um, not to the point that it's such a stupid balance, right? That like that people want, people want their leadership to be human, but then they don't allow you to be human when you're actually being human. Um, and you can be vulnerable, but you can't be too vulnerable. And you can be, I've got, brings me back to the Barbie. I just reread um, America Ferreira's uh, monologue in the Barbie movie where she's talking about how difficult it is to be a woman because you can be this, but you can't be too much that, but you got to be this way, but you can't be too much that way. And you got to do these, but you can't do those, even though we need you to do those, but you can't do those. And I just reliving that moment recently, I was like, oh my gosh, it's the same being a leader. You got to be vulnerable, but don't be too vulnerable. You got to be open, but don't be too open. You got to be collaborative, but we want to say and everything. It's a, and yeah, and as a woman of color, there's all this additional undertow to the yes. Yeah, yeah. And to the point that I've been like, are you saying that because I'm a woman of color? <laughs> like, right. yeah, because that's going to be a different conversation. But I need you to, I need you to come to that, figure it out. Um. So yeah, so it's been it's been a lot of work, and I think um, the two things, and you know, admittedly, I've I've been so inspired. Uh, Kwanis Floyd, who leads the National Guild for Arts Education, Community Arts Education, um, always been a trailblazer. I've always just seen her so out in front of everybody. She's <laughs> amazing. She's gonna be lonely sometimes, right? And I feel like yeah. what I can give to people, what I can give to people like her and others like her is the validation in then adopting and adapting the practice for the organization mm -hmm. that I lead now. Um, and so mm -hmm. our hiring practices have shifted significantly because of her mm -hmm. influence and the work that her organization is doing. Mm -hmm. um, we've adapted it to kind of suit the way that we move in the world, but a lot of the, I think the concept and the principles underneath it um, that align and, um, you know, just kind of really thinking through, like, who's been out there doing this work almost by themselves and how, how then can I contribute to the village, right? How do I bring exactly. my leadership voice into this and now lead both on, on behalf of the organization and then within this, you know, larger, larger community. Um, so that's been interesting too. And I think looking back on the the things that I wish I had done differently and doing that differently now, um, the way understanding more strongly, the way that people that I've worked with in the past were thinking about collab being collaborative and now really working to make that a reality that I've worked really hard, I think, to come to terms and reckon with my limitations and in, and limitations in my thinking and limitations in my practice that, held me back then that I'm like, okay, I just have to let go of these things. I did a, an amazing meditation with a, a Buddhist, a Buddhist monk, <laughs> but it was all about this letting go of expectation. And it's completely mm. changed the way that I've been thinking about the way that we struggle holding on to, right. That our, we suffer because of our attachment to expectation and, and the expectation collides with the reality that isn't our expectation, right? That 
we expected this moment to be this kind of way. And because it isn't the way that we expected it to be, we suffer and we struggle. But if we let it go, then we can be present in our moment, whether that moment is then painful or, um, you know, joyous. And um, hanging on to that expectation keeps you from feeling the joy as well. Right. Um, and, and I think that's really been something that I've, you know, thought about over, the, over the last year in particular is, you know, my expectations of what collaboration looks like, my expectations of what hierarchy looks like, um, and letting go of those things to hold that space so that it does become this more generative, um, experience. It does become, um, you know, a, a contribution and not a group think, right. That right. I don't have folks that are just towing the line, but they're actively participating and that's really exciting. And I cherish that I can give that and that I can hold that now as a leader. Yeah. And that's how you get past treating people as tokens, right? They go from tokens to active participants with agency and whose voices actually matter. Yeah. I was going to ask you, Ruby, what advice you would have for someone who wants to do the work you do, but I think you've given it. So I was taking copious notes. I want to know the name of that monk. Where can I can find that monk? I need that monk. But you said, if I would want them to know that where you start is not where you end up. It's not where you start is just a starting point and let go of expectations and think about how you're contributing to the village. Is there anything else that you would add? Or is that, is that your advice that you would give to someone younger? Do you have anything else to add to that? Or not younger, but just starting out in this world that we're in. Somebody just starting mm -hmm. out, somebody just starting out, um, slow down, slow down. Slow down. The immediacy that we feel actually works against us because mm. it pushes us to go past certain foundational things um, in the interest of showing that we're worth it. We are worth it. We have to accept that wherever we are, we're worth it and take the time to ask questions, take the time to read things, swim in the archives and enjoy the the luxury of time when you first start something, because once you get five years down, things go faster and they move faster. And maybe you're not going to see some things because you moved so fast in the moment before that. And you moved so fast in the moment before that, that really owning, owning the space of planning and research and conversation before action and, and being apologetic about it to slow down. So you know that we ask every one of our, I'm going to ask you some more advice. So you know that we ask every Hithora to leave a question for another one. Um, and this question I'm going to ask you could have your name stamped on it. Uh, it was Shemita uh, Bebechur who left it. But when she said it, I was like, oh, this is a question for Ruby for sure. And the question is, you've talked a lot about how you show up for people that you work with. But uh, Shemi's question was, how do you show up for people who are not in the room? Oh, you know, early on, I did such a bad job of it. And over the years, years, probably 10 to 15 years of working at that, um, because there is a distinction between showing up for people who aren't in the room and speaking on behalf of, right? 
Um, and one moment in particular during the, the, the start of the pandemic, we would be in these larger meetings because I was part of a national service organization. We'd be convening these meetings and a lot of conversation happening around, well, artists need this and artists need that and artists, artists, artists. And I get, have a comment. Mm -hmm. Has anybody actually talked to an artist before showing up here today? Because if you haven't, I think we need to slow down, invite those folks into the room, or everybody needs to go talk to your artist friends and ask them who we should be bringing into this conversation. But if we haven't done that, then we really shouldn't be sitting here making decisions. And I think that's, that's how, right? That, oh, are we making decisions for people who aren't in this room? Then how about if we, we ask them? Has anybody taken the time to ask them? Because I think collectively we've been subjected to that. I individually, personally, I've been subjected to that. And it's just not a space that I want to subscribe to. And so actively over the last few years, um, you know, really has that has anybody consulted with that community? Has anybody did you get invited to do that? Why do you think that you're the best person to do that? Oh my gosh, especially with like consulting jobs, people would call, can you guys come in and do this thing? Um, no. Don't you have anybody local that can do that? You really should be looking at local people. And if you like legitimately have nobody, which I find hard to believe, <laughs> then yes, of course, we'll help. Capacity building as an intermediary is is important part of the infrastructure. But, you know, not pushing against my own ego to not take up a space that I don't belong in is how I think I've really tried to show up for folks that aren't in the room that should be in the room. Um, and also bringing people with me. I love when people share a, a attendee list ahead of something because I'll be like, oh, can I bring can I bring somebody with me? <laughs> yeah. All right. Now bring whoever I think would also contribute to that that isn't on the list already, right? That like, how do we create space and hold that space and, and share that space? Um, because we've all been pushed so hard to subscribe and believe in, we've been indoctrinated into the scarcity mindset that, that, that and then competition and perfection and immediacy shuts down all the possibility for collaboration and contribution and so pushing against those things and, and, and even if, if you don't do it from an altruistic perspective even from a self-interested perspective it is way more beneficial to open up the field and to bring people along all right so so it's showing up for people who are not in the room as a person who calls attention to the fact that there's people who should be here that are not here all right and what is your question that you're going to leave behind i did write it down before um, but how are you making space and sharing opportunity and pushing against being the only one? Ooh, nice. And knowing who I'm going to ask that question to, it's pretty perfect too. Some kind of telepathy is going on between all the gestoras that the questions that one is leaving actually are like perfect for the next one. Oh, the next it's really, one? Oh, that's so great. it's really interesting. Yes. I'll tell you when we're offline who it is and, and why I think that's a perfect question. Thank you. Ruby, uh, such a pleasure to speak to you, to hear from you. Uh, it's uh, It always is, but this has been a really great conversation. I'm so grateful to you for taking the time and for being so candid. Um, it's one thing I very much appreciate about you, that you're very transparent and very clear in what you believe in and, and what you do and about your own limitations and how you're learning. So I, I so appreciate 
both the content and the form of what you've shared with us today. Oh, Jimena, thank you so much. It's truly an honor to be seen and invited. And oh my gosh, even in all of that, that's a whole other episode. Um, but it, it really, it means the world to me. Thank you so much. This was Gestoras. This episode of Gestoras was hosted by me, Jimena Varela, and produced by Anush Titanian. This episode was recorded in Washington, D.C. and Oklahoma City. Our theme song is Hace que exista, Make it Exist, by Eli Almik. The graphic design is by Bia Silva. Historas is mixed and supported in part by the Arts Management Program at American University, Washington, D.C. For 50 years, the Arts Management Program at American University has been training leaders in the arts to change the world for the better. Find out more at artsmanagement.american.edu. Follow us on YouTube at Gestoras and on Facebook and Instagram at Gestoras Podcast. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to like and subscribe.